1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the 70th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning, and especially this week, the election. It's been a wild (laughs) one. Yeah, I think it's far from over. And who would have ever guessed that if we had a contested election or we didn't know who the president was the morning after the election that markets would be up significantly two days in a row. Anybody? Anybody out there? Just
2: goes to show you, at the end of the day, Congress is hung, nothing's going to get done, Mm -hmm. per se,
1: and the market loves predictability. Right. And that's just one of those things is that, you know, we always talk about risks are, you know, what I define as risk is things that we don't see, things we don't expect. And I think there's that, comes true with risk to the upside as well, because no one would have guessed that if, you know, we didn't know who the president was, that markets would be, you know, on a tear for two days. yeah And, um, I just think it's interesting to see how this is all playing out. But like you said, you know, for at least the next two years, nothing's going to get done <laughs> because, you know, Democrats are going to control the house and Republicans most likely it looks like are going to control the Senate. yep So in terms of who the president is in terms of getting things done, not much is going to get done, I feel like. No matter who wins. <laughs> right. And yep. the market has been uh, loving that the past couple of days. Absolutely. So we'll get into this here in a little bit, but we will go through some performance numbers to start. And these numbers are as of the market close on November 5th. And the data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index up 4.38% for the month of November and up 8.76% for the year. The Dow up 2.19% for the month and down 0.35% for the year. The NASDAQ up 8.98% for the month of November and up 32.52% for the year. Remember when everyone said tech stocks were dead?
0: Yeah. That was funny.
1: They topped out, I thought. (laughs) What happened? The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is up 7.72% for the month and down only 0.46% for the year now. The Vanguard International ETF, ex-United States, up 7.24% for the month and down 1.85% for the year. Three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.10%. The two-year Treasury yield currently sitting at 0.15%. And the 10-year Treasury sitting at 0.77%. So last week was the worst single week since March. But like we talked about, what a turnaround it has been this week, Um, you know, a couple days before the election and after the election. Yeah. Um, The Bureau of Economic Analysis said Thursday that the U.S. economy expanded at thirty three point one percent in July, uh, August and September. Uh, Obviously, this is subject to revision. But that number represents 7.4% growth since the end of June, bringing the size of the U.S. economy up to about $18.6 trillion, which remains 3.5% below where it stood at the start of the year. It's making ground. You yeah. Making up some ground, man. Yes, it is. Um, and also, while additional stimulus is still a possibility and being debated, the European Central Bank announced last week that they will be putting together a stimulus package for December to help ease the economic burden as cities like Dublin and Paris uh, and also Munich have announced additional lockdowns. So it's actually interesting. I was having a conversation with my barber yesterday, mm-hmm. and he threw out the idea of having a Christmas stimulus this year in the U.S., and I think that would make a lot of people happy. Yeah, I think it would. So that was just an interesting idea that uh, that I haven't heard yet. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. Um. Q3 earnings continue to come in better than expected, and we'll talk about that more in a bit. Um, So kind of let's just break this down, Matt, what happened with the election and, you know, how this is going to influence things regarding the market going forward for people. What are your what are your takes on this really quick? The election in general. Mm -hmm. You know, my
2: opinion is they'll probably announce uh, Biden the initial winner. Everything's going to get recounted. Mm -hmm. And then it's a toss up as to what occurs from there. Um, I would say statistically, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if Trump still ends up winning this through a recount. I don't, I don't know why I'm, I'm leading that way, but, uh, ultimately the market is telling me it really doesn't care right? who the, who the president is. Yeah. But I will say that <clears throat> the appearance now is going to take, you know, weeks, not days to have the absolute final decision. Right. Exactly. And we need, the market seems to
1: not care not about care. that. Not <laughs> care. Yeah. No, I think, um... It's going to be interesting, again, to see what happens. So get your popcorn out. and um, But, you know, I think, again, this was the best scenario for the stock market, at least going forward, combined Absolutely. with low interest rates. I think that this was probably uh, what it was looking for. I think this is a good time to remind listeners that, let's
2: assume we have um, some passionate listeners that might be disappointed at whatever the end result is a couple of weeks from now. I think this is a good reminder for listeners that, You don't want to invest along the lines of if your candidate is the president or not. You want to talk a little bit more about that, Mark?
1: Yeah, well, I I won't touch too much on it because we did a whole podcast about, you know. Just remind them. Yeah, yeah. So a couple, if you go back in the library, um, you know, there's a podcast dedicated to, you know, investment performance under Republican leadership and Democratic leadership. And at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter, Um, you know it tends to do better when there's gridlock in congress but at the end of the day if you just you know invested when you uh, your candidate got into office you know your investment performance was significantly significantly lower than if you just kept your money in the market if your candidate did not win thank um, you just a quick reminder yeah so go back and check that out it was a couple episodes ago probably about a month month and a half ago now so um But enough on that for now, Um, and we'll go to tweets, articles, and research uh, from the week that caught our eye, so I will let you kick it off.
2: I got a couple for listeners, Mark. First is a reminder about sell-offs. This one is a tweet from Helena Meisler on October 30th. She's a writer for RealMoney.com, and... um This is what was said. Uh, I'm going to offer some optimistic news on this ugly Friday market day. Declines like we saw this week are what push the intermediate term indicators to go from overbought to oversold and what gets sentiment from euphoria we saw now to fear. And then she finishes off the tweet with oversold plus fear equals good rallies, Mm -hmm. end quote. And that was from last Friday, and look what happened. Look what this happened? Weekend. Yeah, <laughs> it was pretty timely. Pretty timely. <laughs> so, excellent job there. Um, next note I have is from Bespoke on October thirtieth. Well, then quote: While there have been concerns that the pace of the recovery has been losing steam, the actual results are still overwhelmingly coming in better than expected. End quote. Okay, so that you know that, that caught my eye. Next, they said the matrix of economic indicators are very strong and have only been more positive once before back in 09 and 2010, coming out of the great financial crisis. And this goes all the way back, Mark, to 1998. Now, to explain this a little bit further, the matrix of economic indicators looks at all types of economic indicators, things like manufacturing, employment, housing, inflation, consumer spending, etc. And I find this very bullish going forward. So, you know, they have a whole page, everything, every sort of economic indicator. Mm-hmm. And there haven't been this many looking positive going back over 20 years. I, I found it very intriguing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What it says to me in general is that the market, quote unquote, is underestimating, I think, the underlying economic strength. Just mm-hmm. throwing not out there. So the next thing is an update on record um, on Q3 uh, 2020 earnings. So you alluded to um, earnings season a little little bit ago in the intro. So so far here for third quarter uh, corporate earnings, we have record beats. So uh, Bespoke had a chart mark going back to 2001. And it shows how many companies have been beating the analyst earnings expectations. And can you believe that we're up to 84% beat rate has never been this high going back to 2001? Right. So it tells you that the analysts have been too conservative. The market has been
1: underestimating. The economic strength, some of these companies that are publicly traded. Yeah. Well, I think that people, you know, back in February and March just thought the world was going to end and they didn't realize that most of these companies have the ability to deal with something like this. I think that was very, very underestimated. And you can just see how powerful mm-hmm. these companies are in switching in their, their business models, essentially, to, to, you know. Pivot to. Pivot to the to environment. The new, the new no, excuse me, the new normal right now. Yeah. So, I mean, another
2: thing is, um, guidance raises from these companies um, is at almost a 10-year high. So in essence, their forward-looking comments on what they think they're going to be doing are better than people have anticipated. And then lastly, uh, more and more companies are providing guidance on a forward-looking earnings basis. And Mark, you know they wouldn't do this unless they had visibility, Mm -hmm. right? Because when COVID hit, companies started to say, we are withdrawing guidance for our investors, for our shareholders, and now we're starting to see them put that guidance back on. And again, they wouldn't do it unless they had visibility. Any comments from your side, sir? No,
1: I think it's a positive thing for um, for investors that you know they are getting guidance on stuff going forward. And like you said, it just provides more clarity going forward, which I think is good, and tra- more transparency, which is good for everybody. Yep. All right,
2: I got one more. Remember a couple podcasts ago, you and I were talking about bold predictions? Oh yeah, I remember several podcasts we've talked about this. Well, this is a hot one for me. (laughs) So, you know, as I'm, you know, preparing for the podcast, I'm always keeping my eyes open for what I think is unique material that I think the listeners would enjoy, right? So I come across this article. It was posted on the website Advisor Perspectives, okay? In the article references, a bold prediction by a longtime money manager Jeremy Grantham, and it was titled, The Market Bubble Will Burst in Weeks or Months. Give me a break. That's the title. I'll continue. You're going (laughs) to love this. This is the same gentleman, I want to remind listeners, they probably don't know this, but this is the same gentleman who was saying we had, and I quote, peak profit margins in the late 2000s and early 2010s. It's, he said, he Mark, he said they couldn't get any better. It was not possible for them to get better. OK, so, um, you know, what's happened to the market in the past decade. Mm-hmm. So I found an article where he was still calling for peak profit margins on January 8th of 2018. OK, so according to StockCharts.com, from that last article on January 8th of 2018, to October 30th, the S&P 500 index is up 19.2% since that call, okay? And I'm going to throw it out there. His core equity mutual fund in that same time period is up 2%, okay? So I just want to throw it out there, Mark. What happens when people see some of these bold predictions, not only on TV, but in print, and all of a sudden, that becomes biblical and look at this instance.
1: Yeah, it's just, you know, more more fear tactics and scare tactics than anything else. I mean, um, clearly this guy has been wrong several times before, and that's why I don't think anyone should pay attention to anybody who claims to know what's going to happen. Um You know, especially people who are and I'm going to talk about an article from our friend Ashby Daniels. that kind of talks about this as well. But people who are just bearish all the time, they're never bullish. You have to be aware of that. And especially the people that say we're in a market bubble. Right. Because eventually when we do get a sell off, they'll be like, see, I was right. I knew eventually it was going to happen, but I just didn't know when. That's uh, all bro, clocks ridiculous. right twice a day. Yeah, it's all ridiculous. So, you know, him, nor I, nor you, nor your dog, Louie, knows what's going to happen in the markets in the next day or in the next six months for sure. That's right. You know, all we do know is that over time, markets go up and there's going to be bumps in the road and there's going to be sell offs. But this really, I mean, the media... Just from everything in 2020 has just been so disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, look at look at that in terms of the election. How wrong were the polls going into the election? That's an excellent point. You know, it's kind of like with everything today. It's like you can't trust anything that you hear. And this is no different. So when you see these these pundits on TV or these money managers, quote, money managers saying that, you know, we're in a huge bubble and it's going to burst. It's like I'm really looking at it saying, who cares? <laughs> I love it. Honest. I just want to bring it up to listeners,
2: because at the end of the day, they, they get inundated with these sensationalized headlines. And, you know, one of my my fears as a professional money manager is that, you know, you, you people actually take one of these headlines and all of a sudden change their long term investment and in financial plan because X, Y, Z person Mark said this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. That, that's kind of the fear that I have. And it's never a good, never come. And so to put a bow on this conversation, this is a time, especially in the year 2020, where people should focus on what they can control. Mm-hmm. Right. That's right. And then just give people the 15, 20 second reminder of the things they can control.
1: The biggest ones your savings rate, you know, and some people just don't want to hear that during this year because they're so nervous about what's going to happen. Um, but I mean, you can't control the market. Um, you can control your savings rate. You can control how much you have in emergency savings. Uh, if another pandemic like this ever were to occur, um, you know, you can control, you know, how much life insurance you have. Um, you can control your spending rate too. So, you know, focus on those things and just let the market do what it does. And over time it's a wealth generating machine. So you just got to let that happen. Love it. So back to you, my friend, um, The first was a blog post written by Michael Batnick titled Who Cares on his blog, The Irrelevant Investor. And I just wanted to read a couple lines from this. So he says, stock market is experiencing its worst week since March. And he was talking about last week, to which I say, who cares? I'll tell you who cares. Day traders, market makers and journalists, to name a few (laughs) who shouldn't care. Everybody else. Let me clarify who I mean by everybody else. I'm talking about people who don't view the stock market as a form of entertainment. I don't mean to be a cavalier or to say you're not allowed to feel a bit nervous. Heck, I feel it. But when I say who cares, I'm specifically referring to the gyrations of the market over a short period of time. You know what you signed up for. Remember March? The only reason we put our hard-earned money on the line is to secure financial freedom. That's it. And if a 6% drop in one week is impacting your ability to live the life you want to live, then you're taking too much risk. Boom. Maybe you're not worried about this 6%, but you're worried about the next move lower. In which case, I repeat, then you're taking too much risk. The stock market hates uncertainty. You should love it. Uncertainty amplifies risk and risk plants the seeds for future reward. Eventually, most of the time. Well put. Yeah. That's just one of those things where, you know, again, if you don't think we're going to have sell-offs like 6% in a week, then you're doing something wrong. Um, you know, everyone I think keeps saying, I keep hearing that this heightened volatility is not normal. And I'm in the camp that we might be going into a new phase where, you know, bigger swings up and down are the new normal. It's kind of like the same thing with interest rates right now. You know, people aren't used to the interest rates staying this low for so long, but I don't see that changing anytime soon. And people have to learn to grapple with the new environment that we're living in. And, you know, we always say that, you know, history never repeats, but it always rhymes. Um, You know, I think this applies to that as well. So, you know, people have to be okay with with the market going up and down like this in short periods of time to, again, you know, be rewarded with those long term, uh, you know, higher than average return gains and
2: anything else. Well put, Mark. The only comment I would have on everything you just mentioned is going to be in regards to at the end of the day, the market's going to be volatile, right? And there's always going to be a situation where it's not a free lunch. So in essence, the market's not going to go up a quarter of a percent or X amount percent evenly every single day. No. So what is the sacrifice of getting that nice long term rate of return of being in equities? It's you have to endure short term volatility from time to time. Right only other comment I got is in regards to the indices. This, more and more, in my opinion, is a stock picker's market where you're going to have a performance difference between names. But the indices, if you're index investing, might not do as much or as well as they have in the past. And again, that's just a feeling I have, just an opinion. Mm-hmm. But I think index investing... As more and more people do it, it is going to become less and less effective. Mm. And we are getting more and more to an active money manager, active stock picking type environment. Just
1: my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I think in this type of environment, you're going to see a lot of names um, left behind, you know, and especially, you know, during a pandemic when, you know, leisure and travel, you know, that stuff's been crushed. Yep. Financials have been yep. crushed. And those things are all part of the index. And, you know, right now, I don't understand why anyone would want to own that. So don't disagree. um, The next thing I had was a blog post, as I mentioned earlier, written by Ashby Daniels. And this is titled uh, The Sky is Falling on his blog, The Retirement Field Guide. And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about a little earlier with the people that are just perpetually, you know, bearish. Uh, all the time. <laughs> by the way, I didn't know you were going to talk about this. Yeah, it turned out to be, uh, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? We're talking it ties sense. well together. Yeah, yeah. Our, and we're also our brains giving organizing. some sense out there, you know. Yeah. Of, keep going. Um, he starts by saying, I want to briefly rant about something I believe retirees should be aware of that can potentially run their portfolios off course. That is a subject of perma bear pundits. My problem with these folks is twofold, twofold. Their pessimistic position never changes. Hence the name perma And the record of a permanently pessimistic viewpoint is historically absurd. And it is absurd because we've seen that over time stocks go up. So people that are always bearish, it just doesn't make any sense to me, you know? So he keeps on going and says, I get it. Pessimism sounds smart. It even comes off is that if they are genuinely trying to help. The problem isn't with being pessimistic, but with being permanently pessimistic. One easy way to identify these folks is that often that is often glossed over or missed by the general public is that almost 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 all perma bears sell one of two things. A new book that is hot off the press because <laughs> all their older books look ridiculous now an email newsletter subscription that will continue to pander our innate fears. Anyone, myself included, who tries to sell you a book or newsletter subscription by catering to the fear side of your brain should immediately cause you to run away. It will not help you. And I think I put, um, you know, people that push these uh, holy grail investment indicators to in the same camp run away if, with that as well. Yep. Um, but again, if you see these people. And there's several out there. I won't name any names that are just constantly, constantly so pessimistic. It's like, I don't understand how they even get subscribers to their newsletters anymore, or how they get uh, airtime on media, or how they how they just sit there and consistently say that the market is going to be in a free fall when they're wrong every single time. I know the credibility you think would be gone by now. I know. I just don't understand how that's still a thing that these people, you know, still have businesses off of being like this. I have no clue. So I just thought it was interesting. No, and I it appreciate, went it, well it's just a with, good
2: reminder for listeners at the end of the day. Cause again, it goes back to what I mentioned about, you know, five, 10 minutes ago. One of my fears is that people have a solid financial plan in place right? They're invested along properly with their goals and objectives and risk tolerances. And then they see one of these bold outlandish predictions and they change everything because of that. And it's not like they're providing the exact track record of this money manager associated with that prediction. That's the fear that I have. Right.
1: Yeah. Right. Um, Moving on to our final topic, which is the financial planning topic of the week. This comes from an article on ThinkAdvisor titled 10 Tax Planning Steps to Take Before New Year's Eve, and this was published on October 21st. All right, here we go. I like this one. Yeah, so I'm not going to go through all of them, but I just picked out a couple that I liked. Um, We can kind of talk about this. All right. So number one is take advantage of gifting to family. Everyone can make tax-free annual exclusion gifts of up to $15,000, $30,000 for a married couple. To as many people as he or she desires without counting towards the taxpayer's lifetime exemption from estate and gift tax. One possible gift is a 529 plan for a child or grandchild. Special rules allow for the transfer of five times this amount, meaning a married couple could make one gift of 150000 per beneficiary, but no additional gift for the next four years. Okay. All right. So if people want to take advantage of gifting, I think now is the time to do it.
2: Real quick, I don't want to extend the podcast too long, but I think the perception by public is, well, Mark, if I give more than 15,000 to one individual, I'm going to pay some tax right now or they're going to pay some tax right now. Mm-hmm. And that's not exactly true. You want to explain what that what that what I'm talking about?
1: Well, yeah, it's just I mean, it's it's right here. I mean, everyone can make a tax-free annual exclusion gifts up to 15,000 uh to as many people as he or she desires. Yeah, I guess so- what I was
2: insinuating is what if they wanted to give 50,000? I think the perception is once you go above 15, it's an immediate tax, whereas you're filling out a lifetime gift exemption and it lowers your ability to pass money along down the road. It's not an immediate tax. Right, right, right. And That's the the point I wanted to kind of insinuate. Yeah,
1: no, that was great. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, Number two was maximize pre-tax contributions to 401ks and HSAs. So this shouldn't be a surprise to many people, but... Pre-tax contributions to employer-sponsored 401k plans in 2020 are limited to $19,500 per individual with an additional $6,500 catch-up, allowed for taxpayers over 50. Health savings accounts are available to taxpayers with high-deductible health insurance plans and allow for contributions of pre-tax dollars. Growth within the HSA is income tax-free, as are withdrawals if used for qualifying health care expenses. Contributions in 2020 are limited to $3,550 for an individual or $7,100 for a family and a catch-up contribution of $1,000 for individuals over 55. And again, the one thing I want to point out about HSAs is the withdrawals are um, tax-free if used for qualifying health care expenses. But if you're in retirement, and you build up your HSA and you just take it out to help supplement living expenses. You, all you do is just pay ordinary income tax. There's no penalty associated with that. So it's almost, you know, a secondary, um, you know, pre-tax tax retire- retirement account. Yeah, yeah yep. exactly. Uh, the next one is prepare for the unexpected with a liquidity plan. Having a solid cash flow plan for any unexpected cash needs, such as tax payments, medical or other family expenses, or even to pursue a lifestyle purchase, may be an important component of an overall wealth plan. Ask whether a cash offer for a costly item could proceed with disrupting the current investment portfolio. Using securities as collateral for a line of credit allows one to have access to liquidity without disrupting one's portfolio and potentially incurring capital gains. So that's one thing that you know, not a lot of people know about, but if they have a significant amount of money in a taxable investment account, people can um, you know, have a, a loan out against that so that they can keep their money invested. Um, so it kind of works like a, a home equity line of credit, but instead of the, the house being collateral, the securities in the account are the collateral. Um, now, I'm not recommending that people do this, but it is more and more attractive with where interest rates are right now. Yeah, no, I think it's a,
2: it's a great reminder.
1: Um, the next one is time charitable giving. So taxpayers who itemize can deduct twenty to sixty percent of adjusted gross income, depending on the type of asset gifted and whether the gift is made to a public charity or private foundation, with the limit of up to sixty percent of AGI for cash gifts to public charities. For 2020 only, the CARES Act increased this limit to 100% of AGI for itemizers and also allowed a $300 above-the-line deduction for non-itemizers. Be sure to time gifts appropriately so that they may be received and recorded by the charity by December 31st, keeping in mind that gifts of assets and other cash take more time for charities to process. Um, So I know a lot of people these days don't itemize anymore. So this doesn't apply to a lot of people just because the standard deduction is so high. Um, but for people that do decide to itemize, um, they do have that option. And the last thing I wanted to say was selecting the right assets to gift to charity. And I know we've, or you've talked about this before, Matt, yep. but gifting appreciated stock that has been held more than one year can benefit both the recipient, uh, charity, and the tax a taxpayer making a gift of the stock receives a deduction for the fair market value of the shares at the date of the gift, but doesn't incur the capital gains tax that would apply if he or she first sold the stock and then donated it to donated the proceed. So do you want to touch on this a little more? Yeah, I mean, the first comment I want to sort of throw out
2: there is when we have clients that want a gift, you know, amounts to charity, let's say it gets above, say, a thousand dollars, I don't want them writing checks for that. I want them, you know, gifting highly appreciated assets. But, you know, the biggest benefit is at the end of the day, they could have held this stock for, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And it's just so much more effective to do a direct donation of that highly appreciated asset. Let the charity sell it with zero taxes. Mm -hmm. It's, in essence, you writing a check only difference is
1: you're not paying taxes before you do it. Right, exactly. Um, and, you know, obviously, if people are in the 0% capital gains tax rate, then you can go ahead and sell, sell stuff and it won't matter. But for most people, it's not the case that we see. So um, it's kind of a win-win for the charity and for you that you don't have to pay, you know, tax on that money. And a plug I want
2: to throw out there is for our uh, paraplanner, Aaron Kramer. He assists clients with these types of strategies all the time you know, the most effective way to to gift money to charities. So listeners, if you have any questions for Aaron regarding this topic, you can email him at Aaron, A-A-R-O-N at JessupWealthManagement.com.
1: Yep. Um, Well, that's all I had, Matt. Is there anything else you wanted to kind of discuss before we leave it here for this week? I do not, sir. Okay. So we will be back uh, next week, probably uh, Wednesday or Thursday. I'm not quite sure what day we have uh, to be recorded, but um, we hope everyone has a great weekend and we will see everybody uh, next week for the 71st episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast. Have a great weekend, everyone.
0: Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict